I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... It is really our belief that every single trafficking victim needs a pro bono lawyer, even if that victim is going through the criminal justice system as a victim witness. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. It's What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. Our guest today is Martina Vandenberg, the president and founder of the Human Trafficking Legal Center. Guess what? Human trafficking is happening all over the world, even here inside the U.S. in some of our embassies. But the Human Trafficking Legal Center represents those who are being trafficked or being held in captivity for work. And they're trying to make sure they get legal representation that frees them. By the way, one of the groups of our nation's federal government just got a Sammy Award, the Samuel Heyman Award for Government Service, in stopping human trafficking at our border. It's a big deal, and the economics of it will really surprise you. Here's our conversation. Martina, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. D.C. has many organizations with many long titles, but yours, thankfully, says what they do in the title, the Human Trafficking Legal Center. Tell us the genesis of the organization, who was your big help to get it started, and why you wanted to start it. It is so important for human trafficking victims to have access to justice. And that is missing, by and large, around the world. Trafficking victims don't have access to lawyers, and they don't have access to justice. So I worked for a long time at Human Rights Watch. And while I was at Human Rights Watch, I interviewed trafficking victims all over the world. We took their stories, and we wrote reports, and we did advocacy. But we never went to court. And we never managed to get justice for individual victims. And so when I went into private practice, I decided to do pro bono work for trafficking survivors. And I did pro bono work at the law firm where I worked for years. But it soon became apparent that we couldn't take every pro bono trafficking case where a victim needed representation. It just wasn't possible. My partners at the law firm joked that I was head of the human trafficking practice group that existed only in my mind. But we had about 40 lawyers doing trafficking cases. Wow. At some stage, I realized that every single law firm in the country that did pro bono work should have a pro bono practice group working on trafficking. So I left the firm. I founded the organization. Uh, I got a fellowship with the Open Society Foundations. And so the Soros Foundations helped in the very beginning in setting it up. And since then, we've worked for the last 10 years to connect trafficking victims with highly qualified, highly skilled pro bono lawyers. One of my one of my board members calls it uh, connecting some of the best lawyers in the country with some of the most vulnerable people in the country. What a great opening story. How do you recruit the law firms? I know that law firms, at least I would argue the largest and most respected, at least purport to make sure their partners and their young associates give of their time to pro bono. I'm not sure it's always completely uh, honest in what they're trying to do, but how, how do you find the firms that really mean what they say? So pro bono in Washington, D.C. works. It's something that works well because the law firms here in Washington, D.C. are completely committed to pro bono. Hmm. And they have multiple reasons for doing so, right? Many of them, many of the lawyers in these big firms are frustrated public interest lawyers who yep. wanted to go and save the world and found themselves in a law firm instead 
And so the pro bono work is a way that they can continue reminding themselves of why they went to law school in the first place. There's also an imperative for pro bono law firms to train their associates. And so the very first pro bono trial that I did in a trafficking case, I sat first chair and this very senior partner supervising the case at my law firm, she sat fourth chair. And so she was there to make sure that everything went beautifully and to make sure that we won, which we did. But she was there as backup and as supervision. And it was the job of these associates who were completely seized with this case and totally dedicated to this client. It was our job to win the case. To flip the roster. I like that. Well, flip the roster, but also change the balance of power, right? Because a lot of what we do is change the balance of power so that trafficking victims are not walking into court without a lawyer while the trafficking defendant is lawyered up to the hilt, right? We're trying to change that dynamic. So sticking with law firms, do you have you found that this is unfair to ask, and, and I'm, I guess I'm not saying please name the ones who are best, but I'm sure some find more value in this than others. Is there some churn in your list of law firms that you consider clients or partners or suppliers of these folks, or is it come one, come all, each year it's the same 5, 10, 15, 50 law firms? We work with probably about 20 law firms around the country. And there are more who periodically will come in and do cases. But the real centers of pro bono work are, as you might expect, Washington, D.C., New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and, and Dallas and Houston. Those are the places where we can place cases because we work nationally. We're not just working in D.C., and we work internationally as well. So we're looking for lawyers sometimes all over the world, mm-hmm. not just in the Washington, D.C. region. What is most difficult is finding lawyers to do pro bono work in Nebraska, mm-hmm. finding lawyers to do pro bono work in Montana. It's extremely difficult where the firms are smaller and the margins are smaller. It's very difficult to find pro bono lawyers who can step up and do the kind of litigation that's necessary for trafficking victims. These are not small cases. Mm -hmm. We had a case recently that we had referred out to pro bono counsel, and the legal team on that case, on the first day of trial, the legal team was close to 20 people. including a dozen lawyers, paralegals, other support staff. These cases take in some, it it feels like an army of lawyers. Yeah. And so the firm has to really agree that they are going to see the case through. And there are a number of cases, there are a number of firms that we've actually given awards to because their partners and associates have performed so beautifully and, and, obtained such remarkable results for human trafficking survivors. I I decided that it was just incredibly important to be able to do all pro bono all the time, right? For a lawyer who's committed to human rights, that's the dream, all pro bono all the time. And so when the job that I wanted didn't exist, I had to create it. You came to this from graduate of Pomona, Rhodes Scholar, and then you went to Russia. Was that after your Rhodes Scholarship, I assume? And yeah. were you in Russia as an attorney, or what was your what was your stint there? No, I moved to Russia after my two years at Oxford uh, for the scholarship. I moved to Russia, spent one year working at the U.S. Embassy. I was in charge of food aid. My nickname at the embassy was the Butter Lady because uh, the U.S. government had given 100,000 tons of butter to the Russians. And just as a footnote, the Russians didn't like the butter because it was salted. They wanted unsalted butter. Oh, of course. <laughs> Nevertheless, I spent uh, four years 
in Russia. So one year with the embassy. And the reason I moved to Russia was to work with Russian women to start a rape crisis center. So we opened a rape crisis center in 1994. It was a completely grassroots effort by Russian activists and psychologists and feminists working closely with Americans at the time. But that rape crisis center is still open. Mm. They just celebrated their 25th anniversary what a recently. And they are doing remarkable service for women who are subjected to sexual violence in the Russian Federation. So after Russia, that experience obviously became something <laughs> of, of, uh, of deep commitment. How did you get involved with Open Society, and how, or how did they find you, and how did, that, how did that partnership start? So there was actually a huge gap. So I worked for Human Rights Watch when I was in Russia and did an investigation on violence against women in the Russian Federation. So before I left Russia, I had started working for Human Rights Watch. I then left Russia and moved back to the United States to go to law school. So that's when I became a lawyer. And when I graduated from law school, I spent a number of years at Human Rights Watch, mostly documenting rape as a war crime. And, and other war crimes against women in the Balkans and trafficking of women for forced prostitution in, uh, in Bosnia and in Kosovo. So when I left Human Rights Watch, I went into private practice, spent nine years in private practice, again, trying to do as much pro bono as I possibly could, but also doing a lot of billable work. And when I left the firm, I needed a bridge so I found uh, uh, this fellowship with the Open Society Foundations, and it gave me a year of buffer between law firm life and then the time that it took to set up a new organization from scratch in, in Washington, D.C. So Open Society is George Soros, correct? It is, yeah. Have you found in some ways that that is a loaded name, and has that ever – no, no disrespect meant to George Soros, who mm -hmm. I've met, and I, I worked with his son at one point – but that's such a that's like a brand name to a whole chunk of America now. Has that ever been an issue? I came across the Soros Foundations the first time when I lived in Russia, when I worked at the US Embassy, because Soros was actually paying through his foundation, he was paying the salaries of Russian scientists so they wouldn't defect to Iran to build nuclear weapons huh. for Iran. Who knew? Right? People don't know that. And it was one of the remarkable things that worked in terms of propping up scientists who were devastated and impoverished because of the collapse of the Soviet Union and supporting those scientists so that they could go on and, and, and do good work in Russia without, mm -hmm. without cooperating with, with, with enemies of the United States and actually enemies of, of most countries. When I... Uh, worked with the Open Society Foundations for that one year as a fellow, I already had some inkling of the work that they did around the world. And I had tremendous respect and continue to have tremendous respect for the work that they do. Most recently, we collaborated with them on an amicus brief before the Supreme Court of the United States that we wrote as the attorneys, along with colleagues at another law firm and at OS, uh, the Open Society Justice Initiative, it was uh, an amicus brief filed on behalf of Congress about trafficking of children into forced labor in the cocoa plantations in Cote d'Ivoire. So when people think of their chocolate, they don't necessarily think of children being held in forced labor, forced to harvest chocolate using you know, dangerous machetes. These are small children. Mm. And so there was a case before the Supreme Court, 
And we did the amicus brief uh, in the Supreme Court. And unfortunately, um, that case was thrown out. To this day, child labor and forced labor continue in the chocolate industry so, and in so many industries around the globe. Is this the import bans of forced labor that you're working on? Is that is that the umbrella? It's a little bit. It's a little bit separate. So that's more the strategic. So we work on strategic litigation, yeah. and we also work on import bans. And the strategic litigation is bringing cases into U.S. courts in order to stop forced labor. Because if you if you look at the numbers, the numbers are pretty devastating. According to the International Labor uh, Organization, there are about 25 million people held in all forms of forced labor around the globe. But when you look at prosecutions, which has been the main methodology that we have thought would combat trafficking, there were only 9,876 prosecutions in the entire world. Yeah. And of those, only 1,115 were for forced labor. So that's about one prosecution for every 18,000 people held in forced labor around the globe. The United States is frankly no better. In 2020, there were 210 federal prosecutions in the entire country. And of those, only 15 were for forced labor. Hmm. So we are completely dropping the ball. So one of the things that our organization does is find cases that can be brought as civil cases, not criminal, but civil cases, using the same laws that a federal prosecutor would bring. But we bring those cases as civil cases in the federal courts to try and get justice for trafficking survivors. We're talking with Martina Vandenberg. She is the founder and president of the Human Trafficking Legal Center. Now, it's funny you talk about chocolate because I've always been, I mean, horribly, this is a bad way for me to think about marketing, but Blood Diamonds as a brand, right? We're mm -hmm. all now conscious of Blood Diamonds. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. Don't you know that? And it just seems to me with your comment on chocolate, I'm sure for probably every industry, there's some version of that where the cheap, cheapest possible labor under complete duress and unable to move out of their slavery mm -hmm. generates the product we use. We certainly saw that and the, the press that erupted for a while over Nike and the sneakers and who was doing that. And then some of the manufacturing of our technology industry products uh, in, in, in Asian nations. But it seemed like marketing is almost as important as anything to raise awareness. Are you seeing the same thing on some of these issues? What we frequently say is that forced labor is a feature and not a bug in global supply chains. Wow. It is a feature. And, and those global well supply chains are just completely infused with forced labor. That includes child forced labor. And so we have been searching for remedies. Again, remedies beyond marketing. It's very important for consumers to know that they're buying goods tainted with forced labor. But, but it's a lot to ask of a consumer to figure out which goods are tainted and which aren't. And so it causes a kind of paralysis in consumers. So what we have found that works better, that is a remedy that we are all doing cartwheels about these days, is, is import bans. Mm -hmm. And so the United States has a law, the Tariff Act of 1930, right? Who knew the Tariff Act of 1930 could actually be a useful tool to combat forced labor? But in 2016, that law was amended by a group of workers' rights advocates and who convinced Congress to amend the law. And the, the Tariff Act has a section that says, if goods are made in whole or in part by forced labor or prison labor, they cannot enter the U.S. market. Now, for years, that law was on the book, but, but it was never enforced. It is now being enforced. And so last year, according to Customs and Border Protection, which is in charge of enforcement, there were 1,469 shipments detained at port, 
where they weren't permitted to sell those goods to U.S. consumers because they were tainted with forced labor. Mm -hmm. The number that really speaks to me is the value of those shipments, $486 million. Wow. $486 million in goods that U.S. consumers aren't buying because they're tainted with forced labor. And let me tell you, corporate America has awakened from its stupor and discovered that now there's real enforcement. So I compare this to what happened in the bribery realm. Mm -hmm. Bribery used to be ubiquitous in business contexts. In Germany, bribery was even tax deductible. Mm -hmm. But when the U.S. government and the Europeans started enforcing anti-bribery statutes, there was a complete revolution in how corporations dealt with allegations of bribery. Those allegations now go straight to the C-suite. They go to the chairman of the board. There's an internal investigation. There's an enormous compliance program. We seek the same sort of seriousness in corporate America in dealing with forced labor that we see corporate America taking in the face of bribery. Or in corrupt practices. Absolutely. It's What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. We'll have more with this conversation after this. If you know someone we should be talking to in our show, let us know. We want perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. You can reach out through our website or through Twitter. We look forward to hearing from you. We're excited to be joined today by Martina Vandenberg. She is the founder and president of the Human Trafficking Legal Center here in Washington, D.C. We're talking about all of the amazing issues and some of the remedies surrounding human trafficking that you and your colleagues are doing there in the, in the center. One thing that popped out that I was hoping to learn more about, and I shouldn't be surprised by learning about it, is some of the human trafficking that occurs in the um, embassies here in Washington, D.C., or maybe our embassies in other nations. Walk us through what's going on there. So I'm so glad you asked about that. There's an enormous problem of diplomats trafficking domestic workers for forced labor and, in some cases, sexual servitude. So I'll just give you two examples. There was a case here in Washington, D.C., just in the suburbs in Maryland, of a trafficking victim brought from Malawi, held in forced labor for years by a diplomat from Malawi. That diplomat then left without paying the judgment, which was more than a million dollars, left, went back to Malawi, where she was promptly promoted by her government and became an ambassador to another country. It is hugely problematic when diplomats bring domestic workers into the United States, hold them in forced labor, and then fail to compensate them. So one of the things that we have frequently managed to do is force governments to make what's called an ex gratia payment. If a diplomat from your country commits a crime against someone here in the United States or violates the human rights of someone here in the United States, then the government of that country should pay if the diplomat will not. But this isn't just a problem of foreign diplomats coming to the United States or foreign diplomats going to you know, other capitals around the globe. We have also had cases of American diplomats who have trafficked domestic workers in their homes while stationed abroad. We had one horrendous case where a husband and a wife, she a, an American diplomat, he an Australian diplomat, trafficked Ethiopian domestic workers, once in Japan, once in Yemen. Not only were those women held in forced labor, but the male member of household also raped both of those women. Wow. This case was brought as a sexual servitude and forced labor case. 
And thankfully, the second case went before a jury in the Eastern District of Virginia. Interestingly enough, there were a lot of federal employees on that jury because of where it where the where the case was was right. tried. Um, but the jury awarded the victim in that case more than three million dollars in damages. Wow. So we're talking about the international, sadly, the market for what's going on here. And you mentioned some of the uh, uh, interdictions that happened with products and services, I guess half a billion dollars in value that had been stopped from uh, from nations that were using forced labor. Is there any specific reason that region, I should say, that's sort of been labeled as as a bad character? I think we we I heard of one in China. Right. What is it? Yes. So 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 at this point, there is significant concern about forced labor of Uyghurs in Xinjiang and and throughout China, actually. And so one thing that really works in Washington, D.C. is Congress. Yeah. But Congress just passed practically unanimously a bill called the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. That law, which will take a little bit of time to go into effect, but that law, which has now been signed by President Biden, creates a rebuttable presumption that all goods coming from Xinjiang, China, are made with forced labor. So any good that has on the label that it's coming from Xinjiang cannot come into the United States. It will be detained. And that's because of serious concerns about genocide and and forced labor against the Uyghur people in, in Xinjiang. The only other region or country that has that same assumption that all goods coming from this place are made with forced labor, the only other place is North Korea. Interestingly enough, one of the products detained by U.S. Customs and Border Protection enforcing these uh, detention orders on goods made with forced labor, one of the goods that came in was false eyelashes. Ah. So a huge shipment of false eyelashes coming made by North Korean workers, allegedly held in forced labor. Similarly, Customs and Border Protection put out pictures of human hair. Again, this is really reminiscent of the Holocaust, but human hair coming into U.S. customs warehouses for marketing and sale in the U.S. market where the hair itself came from Xinjiang. And, you know, it's for hair weaves and for all sorts right. of like hair care here in the United States. People buying that might not realize that so, that's potentially from someone being held in forced labor or imprisoned. We talked about the economics, and I have cynically often find that where the money flows is where the behavior ends up flowing. So are there scorecards that a consumer or a business can use to try and alter their purchasing or their supply chain or other behavior to comply or at least feel that they're more fully aligned with trying to penalize or stop nations from acting this way? Happily, we are at this moment that I think is revolutionary because we have enforcement of the Tariff Act. We have goods that are being blocked at the U.S. border. There is a move afoot among all of the developed nations, the European Union, Australia, Taiwan, Japan, countries across the globe are considering the option of adopting a Tariff Act like BAN. So the project, we call it No Safe Harbor for Forced Labor because we don't want goods coming to the U.S. market to just be transshipped to another country. Canada and Mexico already have these import bans because it was written into the U.S.-Canada-Mexico agreement that replaced NAFTA. 
So we're, we're at this moment where there's enormous enthusiasm and enormous political will behind the enforcement efforts, which is incredible to see. As a result, the question that you asked about whether or not there's tracking, whether or not there's tracing, whether or not people are actually paying attention to their supply chains, they are, because now there are real consequences if you don't. NAFTA, I, I can't imagine Canada ever having forced labor. They're too polite up there. They would never, they would never engage in that. You know, interestingly enough, we, what they're doing is barring goods made with forced labor from entering the Canadian market. Now, for your legal assistance, how do forced labor victims find you and get their case heard? So most of our work is done through non-governmental organization partners. So a non-governmental organization here in Washington, D.C. may be providing social services to a victim or a group abroad that we work with may be providing social services and housing to a victim. And that organization will say this person is is settled and safe and they need a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And so those cases get referred to us. My, my main concern is that victims be safe and have wraparound services before they get a pro bono lawyer. Pro bono lawyers are fabulous, but they are lousy social workers. And right, so right. it's really important that people have wraparound services and right. that all their basic needs are met. So that's one way. The other way is we do get referrals from the U.S. Attorney's Office occasionally. We get mm -hmm. referrals from law enforcement. We get w referrals from victim witness uh, officers uh, with various uh, federal agencies. And when that happens, I am thrilled because it is really our belief that every single trafficking victim needs a lawyer, mm -hmm. needs a pro bono lawyer. Even if that victim is going through the criminal justice system as a victim witness, right. you wouldn't think that that person needs a lawyer, but actually they do need a lawyer because there are many victim witness issues that need to be paid attention to by someone with legal expertise. Martina Vandenberg, founder and president of Human Trafficking Legal Center. Let's go to the magic wand moment. At the end of each show, I ask our guest, if you were in charge of everything for a day, and wave the magic wand, what would you do? Positive or negative? What would you what would you create or what would you get rid of? I would create a global import ban. Okay. So that there truly could be no safe harbor for forced labor. So that goods made with forced labor, like rubber gloves in Malaysia, for example, rubber gloves in Malaysia shouldn't be able to enter any market, not just the U.S. market. They shouldn't enter any market if they're made with forced labor. Huh. So my goal would be for every developed economy in the world to have an import ban and to pay attention and make sure that goods made with forced labor are not entering their market. That's a great wish list. Hey, that's a vision. Well, kind of like <laughs> you can run, but you can't hide. We're going exactly to right. know who you are, and we're going to hit you where, frankly, as I mentioned earlier, the pocketbook, which is where... Often behavior is changed best. That's absolutely right. I mean, unless people believe that there is risk, yeah. if they don't see any risk, there will be no attempt to mitigate. Martina Vandenberg, founder and president of the Human Trafficking Legal Center. Thank you for being on What's Working in Washington today. Thank you, Mark. The team behind What's Working in Washington is a great group. The executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Online content, Anna DeGraff. And that theme music you enjoy, performed by the Sunbathers. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.